Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. On the next Making Contact... There are a vast number of women who are beginning to wake out of the long sleep that is known as cooperation of one's own oppression and self-denigration. And they are banding together to make the beginnings of a new and massive women's movement in America and in the world. To establish true equality between the sexes. To break the old machine of um, sexual politics and to replace it with a more human and civilized world for both sexes. And to end the present system's oppression of men as well as of women. With so many reports of sexual violence and harassment scandals leading the news these days, one has to wonder where we stand as a country on issues impacting the health and safety of women and girls. During the 60s, the country experienced a vibrant feminist movement that insisted that women exist as equal beings not beholden to standards set by their male counterparts. Fast forward five plus decades later, women are still advocating for some of the same basic rights, as shown through the Me Too and Time's Up movements advocating for the end to sexual harassment and violence against women. Today on Making Contact, we'll present the documentary, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, a reflection on the rise of women's liberation movement in the United States between 1966 and 1971, produced by Pamela Bull, Elizabeth Driehaus, and filmmaker Mary Dorr. She's Beautiful explores the emergence of a political thought that challenged systems of patriarchy. This documentary provides important historical insight at a time when our country is experiencing regression around issues of reproductive rights, equity in the workplace, and violence against women. retire from women's issues you still have to pay attention because somebody's gonna trying to yank the rug out from under you and that's what's happening now the feminists who are here tonight do you not believe a woman's place is in the home right as feminists what we believe in is very simple and that is the social economic and political equality of the sexes because the relationship between the sexes is in fact a political relationship we're an oppressed group, and we have been through history. We have to if you do something as remarkable as changing the relationship between the sexes, everything is at risk, every possible idea. And many people don't like it, especially men don't like it. They're very threatened by it. Women's Lib really is a lot of insignificant people that are really trying to gain their own interests and boost their own ego by making brash statements or being on television or what have you. You're so oversensitive, Olivia. Why are you so sensitive? Uh, we don't like being so sensitive. It's not pleasant. 
We don't like having to always be catching things. We'd rather they didn't exist. But as long as people are going to be insensitive to our position, we're going to have to keep correcting them because there's no other way to change the consciousness. Women, given their educational status, can earn 60% of what men of the same education can. What that really means is that a woman with college education, BA, earns what a man does who has three years of high school. This is economic discrimination and exploitation. Women as well as men told me I was wrong over and over again. Women are not oppressed. Or what does it matter? Who cares? You have a lot of influence. You were working against cultural norms. You're working against institutions. How do you feel about women's liberation? Woman's place is more at home than to advance herself too much. Totally against it. I feel I don't know what they're being liberated from. Many women protested that they liked cooking and housework and catering to men. But I would argue with some woman who was being extremely defensive about the movement and then six months later would run into her at a demonstration. Prior to the women's liberation movement, most women were conditioned to meet the needs and expectations of men. But the introduction of this new feminist thought allowed women to view themselves as full human beings, equally capable of defining themselves and deciding their own paths. As the civil rights movement dominated the world center stage, women weren't content with being excluded from the conversations of resistance and liberation. Their issues needed to be prioritized as well. Activist Francis Bill. The Black Liberation Movement had come into its fore, and you're talking about liberation and freedom half the night on the racial side, and then all of a sudden, men are going to turn around and start talking about putting you in your place. If you don't want any trouble, that was the contradiction in terms that we were no longer prepared to put up with. So 1968, we founded the SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee to take up some of these issues. A number of women felt that we need to go off on our own and focus on what we needed to do in our fight for liberation. I was a graduate student at Berkeley. And one day I saw a little three by five card in the student union and it said a women's group forming. And these consciousness-raising groups spontaneously grew up in many areas of the country. When I first heard about the women's liberation movement, I had two little kids under five. My connection with the world was, I felt, finished. During one of my crises of feeling that my life was over, I heard some young women talking about meetings they were having, and they were talking about women's liberation, and they gave the address of a meeting. So I went to this meeting, and there were these women talking about their lives as I had never imagined people could. Well, you need to be specially trained to be a housewife. You get married, there are a whole new set of rules. We still have to look a certain way and be a certain way. But uh, there's a whole lot more. We went around the room, and people asked a very simple question. How would your life have been different if you had been a boy? 
why you think being a woman might limit you as a human being, your possibilities, you know? We challenged concepts of masculinity. We challenged concepts of femininity. We talked about skin color, how young black women would put cream on in order to make themselves uh, light-skinned. Suddenly, everything was up for questioning. Women did all of the family and housework and cooking, and the men got to make the living and get all of the attention in the world. Why was that? Like, we don't even realize what goes on until we sit and compare with other women. And we heard each other. We heard each other into speech. You could sense it, you could feel it, you could, you could cut it with a knife, as they say. It was, the room was electric with whatever was going to be shared. So I said, I've had three abortions, and the last one was within the last year. And I started to cry, because I suddenly understood that I wasn't alone, that what I had considered personal embarrassment was something that was part of this whole larger experience. The big insight of the women's movement was the personal is political. Problems that you felt were happening to you alone probably were your fault. But if it's happening to other people, then it's a social problem and not just a personal problem. The framing of women's oppression as a societal construct put all the daily personal challenges that women faced into a new broad context. For the first time, women were openly broaching subjects that generations before were too fearful to speak of. Women were demanding the right to control their own bodies and lives without permission from men or the state. Thousands of women in the United States are hospitalized each year because of post-abortion complications. 5,000 of these women die. I had a very good friend in high school who went away to college and she subsequently had an illegal abortion and died. So within three or four months of going off to college, she was dead. People tried to self-abort. My best friend took pills and she had the miscarriage in the dorm shower with the turned on really hard, hoping the noise would muffle the her cries of pain. Some were able to find an abortion. Some had to have the child that they didn't want. All those kinds of experiences we discovered were universal. And abortion became our big unifying issue. Women have a fundamental right to control their own bodies and to control their own lives. Not since the suffragettes fought for the right to vote has an issue been more critical to women than abortion. Somewhere around 1970, I went to an abortion rights rally in San Francisco. And it was a sea of white women, very few women of color. And someone grabbed a bullhorn and asked for the African-American women who were there to gather under a tree. And we decided that we would form a group called Black Sisters United. I was very glad that, you know, somebody called African-American women together and said, you know, 
maybe we have something to talk about that might be a tiny bit different from what's coming from the stage. And indeed we did. I was invited up to Harlem to speak at a event around abortion. Remember, in the Black Liberation Movement, the big debate is abortion is genocide, women should have babies for the revolution. And I remember going up those stairs and my knees were literally knocking because this was a bunch of nationalists and I was really scared. I concentrated a lot about the deaths of black women as a result of illegal abortion and how we should be able to choose when we want to have children. So I managed to survive, you know, some of the attacks. And on my way out, twice it happened. One woman said to me, whispered to me, thank God you speak up. Thank God you're speaking up. And another, as I was approaching the door, said, right on, right on. Dear brothers, poor black women decide for themselves whether to have a baby or not have a baby. Black women are being asked by militant black brothers not to practice birth control because it's a form of whiteys committing genocide on black people. Well, true enough. Black women in the United States have to fight back out of our own experience of oppression and having too many babies stops us from teaching them the truth, from supporting our children, and from stopping the brainwashing, as you say, and fighting black men who still want to use and exploit us. It was very difficult for middle-class white women to have any conception about what was going on in communities of color. And those differences could have been in conversation with each other, but if there isn't even an acknowledgement that there's differences in experience and perspective, and the voice of one is used as the voice of all, then you have a problem. That was during a period when black women did not particularly identify with the women's movement. Mrs. Norton, why are you a black woman involved in women's liberation? I'm involved in uh, the struggle for women's rights. Uh, because I believe women are disadvantaged. Black women are no less than white women. Indeed, black women far more than white women. Women who have spent uh, their lives uh, working in other women's kitchens uh, uh, have a different kind of handicap than women who have been oppressed for their sex in other ways. We were grappling with that idea of how do you integrate race class and gender. That's the reason why we had some reservations about the term feminism, because feminism was just seemed to be dealing with the female aspect of your being. It's important to keep in mind that black women are organized in their own organizations, in their own version of black women's liberation. In 1964, a friend mentioned that his sister was pregnant and nearly suicidal. Could I do anything about it? And I was referred through a series of connections to a doctor. Asked him if he would perform an abortion. He said yes. And a few weeks later, someone else called and said they also were looking for an abortion. The word had spread. And at that point, I decided to set up a bit of a system. I was living in a dormitory at the time. And so I told people to ask for Jane. 
I could tell within the first minute what they were calling about because there was a pause, there was a hesitance, there was a tension. Many were frightened because three people discussing an abortion in those days was a conspiracy to commit felony murder. Jane was this service that was established in Chicago that provided abortions when abortion was illegal. We would have women call us who were in need of the abortion service. And of course, having Jane available without having to refer them to the mob was a godsend. The group would take in the calls and we would do counseling. Then women would be brought to specific houses on a rotating basis where the procedures would be done. The service moved every day from somebody's home to somebody's home, which is quite amazing. I joined the abortion service because I knew that women are sometimes desperate and they are going to hurt themselves in order to end their pregnancies. When I began Jane work, a few dozen women a week were coming through. After about six months, there were at least 100 women coming through. Ultimately, one really good abortionist taught Janes how to do abortions with skill and care. And then those Janes taught other Janes. All of us were always aware that what we were doing was illegal, that we could go to jail. You might have to throw everything in your bag and run down the back stairs at any moment. But we understood that it was important work, useful work, necessary work. What is the relationship of, of the movement to the whole question of motherhood and the affection of mothers for children and so forth? It's about being able to have children if you want them and being able not to have children if you don't want them. And if you want to have your kids in daycare centers, if you want to work, then you can do that too. In the women's movement, the myth was that we hated men, we hated marriage, we hated children. That's not right. The group I was in, we talked mostly about childcare being the absolute precondition for women's emancipation. One of the earliest battles was for childcare. It's in Now's Statement of Purpose. We knew that women could not hold jobs and be promoted until society recognized its uh, obligation to help take care of our children. And I remember at some of the early demonstrations, those who had kids, we would bring the kids. And people would say things like, oh, we can't talk with you nursing the babies and stuff like that. And we would say, show us a daycare center. We'll be happy to bring the kids to the daycare center. Feminists are accused of uh, warning women out of the home and leaving children come what may. We proclaim that when we talk about 24 hour child care, we mean to have it. After a great deal of work where feminists were in the leadership, we got close to having a real child care system. In 1971, amazingly enough, the women's movement, the Congress, the Senate passed a comprehensive child care act. Most historians don't even remember that. Forget about the rest of society. And President Nixon vetoed it. 
He said, we don't want to make our women like Soviet women. We want women to take care of their own children. That was a tragic moment in history. And we've been paying for it ever since. It's one thing for women to pay the price. It's another thing for generations of children to pay the price as well. I can think of, frankly, of no more important issues that early feminists raised than educational childcare. Poor people, black women, women on welfare, are often sterilized against their will. I mean, that's been known to happen. The same hospital that wants to sterilize the black women will not let a middle-class white woman be sterilized. If she says, I don't want to have any more children, they say, you have to be crazy. Be crazy. You've got to tell you me you have to have a medical reason. You have to be yeah. sick. There has to be something wrong with you. Those things are two ends of the same dimension. It's still the issue of control over one's body, right. whether it's, it's the right to have children if you want them, or the right not to. were used as guinea pigs as a way of controlling the population. And then with that sterilization program being brought to New York City, we actively organized raising the consciousness about this. The Young Arts Party was dedicated to issues affecting Puerto Ricans in the United States. We were the first ones to begin to articulate an idea of reproductive justice. It's just as important for women in our communities to be able to have children, raise children that don't go hungry, have daycare, as well as have access to birth control and the right to a safe abortion. The kind of developing feminism that we had in the Young Lords was make very clear decision not to separate, to wage struggle internally with our brothers. The men had written this program. One of the points dealt with revolutionary machismo. What an oxymoron. We weren't having it. So we formed a women's caucus and made demands on the men in the organization. It was ultimately changed to, we want equality for women, down with machismo and male chauvinism. It was important that it's not just women making that statement. It should be men saying, yo, brother, that's really a macho attitude you're taking. You need to check your... And that's what happened. You're listening to the documentary, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, a reflection on the rise of the women's liberation movement in the United States between 1966 and 1971. Produced by Pamela Bull, Elizabeth Driehaus, and filmmaker Mary Dore. This is Making Contact. Subscribe to our podcast or sign up for updates by logging on to our website at radioproject.org. You can also join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Now back to the documentary, She's Beautiful When She's Angry. 
One evening, in my Tuesday night consciousness raising group, West Village One of New York Radical Feminists, Diane Crothers walked in with a newspaper, It Ain't Me Babe, from San Francisco, and said, there's an article here we all have to read. And it was a story about a woman in Marin County who'd been raped during a hitchhike. We read the article and we went around the room and it turned out one woman, Sarah, had been raped. And the police said to her, who'd want to rape you? A friend of mine was raped at knife point in her bed in off-campus housing. I went with her to the student health service and she was given a lecture on her promiscuity. It was very common in a courtroom to blame the woman for the rape. And rape was looked at as a crime that occurred because a man had strong sexual urges that he couldn't satisfy any other way. And it was only with the feminist women that it came out that rape is not a crime of passion. It's a crime that expresses the urge to dominate. People were not used to thinking of rape as a political crime against women. That was our slogan. Rape is a political crime against women. I think the most profound thing that feminism did for me was to make me feel that I was capable of genuine freedom. Before the women's movement, I had my own work. I knew I wasn't going to live a traditional woman's life. I felt that I probably wasn't going to have children. And ultimately, I did have my daughter. And I think, were it not for feminism, I don't think I could have done that. Right after I got out of college, it was November 2006, my mother passed away. And I got all of these letters and emails from her friends, her colleagues, all of the feminists that started the women's liberation movement. And I started to realize that even though I was down with the word feminism, I didn't really know what it meant to me and to our generation. I think the sexism that we experience is a little bit more insidious and it's harder to sort of point out and say, see, see, that's sexism. But I know a lot of young kick-ass feminists out there. They're blogging, they're out in the streets, they're organizing. There's this new movement called Slut Walk that has now swept 70 different cities. And it was started by a young woman who heard a cop say about a woman who was raped, well, she was asking for it, she was dressed like a slut. Believe it or not, people are assaulted regardless of what they wear. Some people who get raped are in burkas. We created a revolution that we are still debating in our society. We're still arguing over many issues that women raised 40 years ago, like abortion, like childcare. We still don't have any childcare. In terms of reproductive health, reproductive justice, we've gone backward in a big way. Yeah. 
if we can have order in the chamber so that the members can properly cast a vote. The bitter lesson is that no victories are permanent. All our rights are like that. They're only as good as we maintain them. And that's the documentary, She's Beautiful When She's Angry. Special thanks to the film's producers, Pamela Bull, Elizabeth Driehaus, and director Mary Dore. To view the full film, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, check out the Making Contact website for links. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Redman, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and Vera Tykolsker. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.